I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John 16, 16 through 33. In John 16, 16 to 33, Jesus shifts from witness to the world back to the great sorrow about to fall on his disciples. Our lesson consists of two main parts. First, we'll walk through the text with a focus on the disciples' confusion. Then we'll address the tricky issue of prayer that I've been putting off since chapter 14. Let's get right into the text. John 16, 16 to 33. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament But the world will rejoice, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, But take courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus returns here to the theme that has run through these chapters, the theme of his departure. This passage in the second half of chapter 16 parallels the first half of chapter 14. Jesus acknowledged the sorrow and confusion the disciples were beginning to experience by his announcement. Jesus is preparing them for anguish that is to come very soon. He said in the first verse of that previous section, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Belief is the most fundamental heart attitude of the disciple. When we struggle, 
when we are confused, when we don't feel love or humility or the desire for God's glory, when our heart is not with God, when our circumstances close about and the positive emotions of the Spirit leave us, we have left the choice to believe. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here in this section, Jesus affirms that his disciples have indeed believed. You have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. But even as he affirms the reality of their belief, he also questions the extent or clarity of their belief, asking questioningly, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. There is real belief here. There has been a true initial yielding to Jesus as Lord and Savior. They have passed the crucial moment. Still, that moment is only the beginning of belief. All of us who have believed in Christ know the reality of tension in our own belief. Like the man who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Belief describes both that absolute starting point when you place your faith in Jesus. You have seen him. You spiritually see him. He's opened your eyes. But we can also use this idea of belief to describe the ongoing process of trusting God. The moment we truly believe, we are forgiven of our sins. We are made eternally secure in Christ. We're born again. At the same time, it is a new birth that begins a lifelong process of growth in faith. These disciples are at the beginning. Their struggle to understand Jesus is apparent. Jesus repeats the announcement of his going, a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. The disciples still don't understand clearly what Jesus is talking about, and that lack of understanding explains a comment I skipped over in our last section. Jesus said in 16.5, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, where are you going? That's a curious thing for Jesus to say. It doesn't sound quite right, does it? It's exactly what Peter asked back in chapter 13 in verse 36. He did ask, Lord, where are you going? And now Jesus is saying, none of you ask where I'm going. We understand this by understanding that there is a progression of dialogue going on through this evening. Peter asks, but then he's immediately told he's going to deny Jesus. And then in a little bit, Thomas asks, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. And Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, do you not know me, Philip? And then Jesus goes on to teach. Peter spoke up and Thomas spoke up and Philip, and they all show that they don't quite get what Jesus is saying. And as Jesus continues to teach, no one comes back for clarification to the question, but where are you going? You never answer Jesus where you're going. We don't get it. So Jesus doesn't mean that no one has asked the question at all when he says that in 16.5. He means you just let the question drop and you still don't understand. Are you not going to ask me? Are you not going to pursue understanding? You know, nobody's asking me, where am I going? At the very end of chapter 14, they had left the upper room. Perhaps Jesus is teaching as they walk. We don't really know the setting of of this um, dialogue or this teaching. It's more teaching than dialogue. By chapter 18, they're getting ready to cross over the Kidron Valley out of Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe they're, they're walking through Jerusalem as Jesus is teaching. 
And we can imagine as they walk that the disciples begin to talk among themselves. You know, Jesus is teaching, but then they're talking about it, wondering what Jesus is saying without asking him directly. And they're confused. He's going away to the Father, but they don't understand how or where exactly or even when. You know, what does he mean when he says a little while? That's the specific detail they're discussing here. Let's read verses 17 and 18. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus hears them, or, or he just knows what he, they're talking about because he's Jesus. So we have verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. The disciples don't know what a little while means. We who read the story know. We know that Jesus is going to be betrayed this night. He's going to be arrested, and he's going to be crucified on the next day. I mean, a little while means it's a really little while. Why didn't Jesus just tell them that? I don't know, but I can imagine. I doubt they would have been able to pay attention to anything that Jesus has been telling them if they knew he was getting ready to be arrested and crucified. So Jesus has more to say and more to teach. He's not ready yet to reveal to them the extent of the anguish that is about to happen. So instead of telling the disciples directly what trial was coming, Jesus gives them a metaphor of hope through suffering. This is verses 20 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. My wife Brenda and I recently read this with our teenage daughter Claire, and afterwards Claire commented, Well, Mom's the only one here qualified to judge this metaphor. Claire was right, and Brenda responded, It's true. For me, I don't remember the pain when I think about it. I just remember my babies." Brenda didn't forget the pain because it was minor, the pain was intense, but the pain was not lasting, and great joy waited on the other side. Not only did the joy push aside the memory of the pain when the baby came, but before that, the anticipation of joy, the anticipation of the baby, provided strength to go through the pain. And that's what Jesus is saying, that there is a great joy, you're going to see me again. There will be restoration, but you have to pass through some intense suffering to get there. He doesn't deny the suffering of grief and loss that is getting ready to come on the disciples. He does not say, if you believe, you will not hurt. You will not feel loss. You will not grieve. That's not the picture of discipleship that Jesus gives. He's telling us we, we will suffer. Jesus doesn't say that faith takes away the pain. He doesn't say you're going to enjoy the pain. You're not going to enjoy suffering. He says the world will rejoice. The world is against you. You'll have to suffer that. You'll be opposed. There'll be some who are glad at your pain. 
and you will grieve, you will suffer anguish, but your anguish will turn into joy, and you will forget your grief. Darkness will fall, but Sunday is coming. Jesus has more than one application for his followers. The immediate anguish is is the anguish of betrayal, fear, shame, loss, the death of Jesus. And they're getting ready to suffer. But in only three days, they'll see Jesus again. They see him after he raises from the dead. So that really applies to the baby metaphor. There's this there's this short, intense pain, and then joy and the realization that Jesus has defeated death. And that's the first immediate application of this metaphor. A second application will be after Jesus ascends into heaven. That leave-taking will not be so full of anguish, but it'll include some loss. Jesus will be gone, and he's going to be gone for a long time. But when they see him again in death, their joy will be made full. A third application of this metaphor has to do with the general principle for our life with God. You know, we lose someone we love. There's real suffering that Jesus doesn't deny. But there is also going to be joy. If that person is a believer, we are going to meet them again in heaven. This life has its trials and its struggles But if we know Jesus, we have tasted some joy of knowing him, whatever that is. There's a a hope we have that when we are with Jesus, uh, as intense and as long as the suffering is here, and, and we can't deny it here, and it's very real here, and it feels like forever here, but whatever it is here, when we are there with him, we will forget it. Because the joy of being with Christ will overwhelm, will move, will shove aside the memory of suffering. Jesus' next words to the disciples here apply to that longer separation. He says, In that day you will not question me about anything. Now that statement alone is tough to understand. You will not question me about anything. What's he talking about? Why will they not ask Jesus anything? Well, because he's gone? Well, yes, that's the kind of simple explanation. That day refers to the next stage of history. In that day, the day after Jesus has come, died on the cross, returned to heaven, that day or period of time before he comes again. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Why not? Well, one, because Jesus is not going to be present. And two, because Jesus is telling them, address your prayers to the Father. Jesus makes that clarification This is 23b through 28. It's a bit longer passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. This is one of those new things that comes with the new covenant. Jesus has already adjusted the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, 
to the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Everything for the believer in God is adjusted by the new reality of Jesus having come, having died on a cross, and having returned to glory. Our understanding of love for others is adjusted in light of the model of Jesus. Instead of love your neighbor, it's love as Jesus has loved you. So we define love according to Jesus. So also our prayer is adjusted. You know, Before this, nobody prayed in the name of Jesus. They, they prayed directly to Yahweh or to Elohim. We still pray to God, but the new reality of Jesus having come to the earth changes how we pray to God. And Jesus invites us to pray to him as Father. That wasn't unheard of in the Old Covenant, but that becomes the norm in the New. And Jesus tells us to pray in the name of Jesus, pray in my name. And that's completely new. Nobody prayed in the name of somebody else before, not any good Jew. But now we're praying in the name of Jesus. What does not change is that we don't pray to somebody else. Now, we are still praying to Creator God alone. We don't have any other mediator. We pray to God. Jesus doesn't even instruct us to pray to Him. You know, He accepted worship during His life. He is God. He would hear our prayers if we pray. We could pray to Jesus. Still, in teaching us about prayer, He doesn't say, make your request to me. He directs us to the Father. We all know the famous way He taught His disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven. This is the emphasis Jesus gives here. He wants the glory to go to the Father. He wants us to know we have access to the Father. We have the love of the Father. He says here he's not going to request of the Father on our behalf. You see, Jesus is saying, don't pray to me to make a request of the Father. Certainly, He never had in, in mind pray to Mary or pray to the saints. That's totally foreign to the Bible. And Jesus here is even saying, don't pray to me to pray to the Father for you. He says, you pray to the Father. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Jesus assures us that God the Father wants us to bring our questions and our requests directly to him. And whenever we pray to somebody else as a mediator, to would you even if it was another human being, and, and we don't feel like we can go to God, and we feel like we have to ask somebody else, you know, a, a priest or somebody to pray for us, then we're missing who God is, and we're missing the relationship that Jesus has established for us. It's it's okay to ask somebody to pray for you. I'm not saying that you you shouldn't, and I understand that we're we're all insecure. What I want to make sure is that that we see what Jesus is saying. The Father loves you. You don't even have to pray to me um, to pray to the Father for you. The Father wants to hear from you, for he loves you. We'll come back to these words about prayer in a minute. First, let's finish out with the confused belief of the disciples. Jesus does acknowledge that he's been speaking in figurative language that may not be easily understood. Uh, Jesus would do this during his ministry for different reasons. You know, he did it as a teacher to create cognitive dissonance. That is to create kind of mental tensions that his listeners would learn from because they would be forced to wrestle with what he's saying. You know, that's part of what I think he's doing here. He also does it as a faith challenge. You know, If you really want to understand Jesus, he's told 
some kind of metaphor about the kingdom or a pearl or or um, spreading seed, and you want to know what he's saying, you have to you have to lean in. You have to seek after him. You have to ask. It's a faith challenge. He also did it when he judged that his followers didn't have the capacity to understand more direct terms. Messiah or Christ, you know, Son of God, those terms are, Jesus avoids those terms in reference to himself because he knows they would be misunderstood. So he speaks more figuratively, less directly. Here, Jesus tells his disciples, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. If you take seriously, without a smile, what the disciples say next, then you're going to have trouble making the sense of it. We need to smile here. Jesus just said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. Then his disciples say, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Really? After all the confusion the disciples have expressed in their comments, Peter and Thomas and Philip, all Jesus has to say is, I came from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And now somehow the disciples can claim, now we know. You know now you're speaking plainly. And what they say about Jesus is true. He knows all things and has no need to be questioned by anyone. His own witness of the Father is authoritative. You know, it's true what they say. But what has Jesus just said to justify their claims, now we know, or by this we believe? You know, you're speaking plainly now. The disciples are close to being like all the others in the Gospels who claim to know without really knowing, to see without seeing. They've gotten caught up in the moment, thinking they have insight, when in reality they're still just as clueless as they were before. Jesus' promise to speak plainly is for a future time. He says an hour is coming. And I can think of that time, you know, after his resurrection. It's reported in Luke 24, 44 to 45, when Jesus appears to his disciples, he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's when I imagine Jesus is speaking plainly. After the resurrection, he's going to reveal to them truth from the Old Testament. He's going to show them things that they could not understand before the experience of the cross. They had to go through this first. So the disciples' claim of insight at this point is not credible, and we have to smile. They're, they're a little overexcited. You know, they get this one little thing clearly that Jesus is going to the Father, and now they think they know. And that's why... In verse 31, Jesus answers them, do you now believe? Jesus doesn't take time to correct them. Uh, They'll soon see things differently. They have a, a heavy weight to bear, and nothing like his, but still heavy. The experience is going to enable them to see. So Jesus doesn't need to really challenge their claim to belief. He'll just wait and let it play out. He He gives a final word to strengthen them. This is 32 through 33. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, 
I have overcome the world. As when Jesus confronted Peter with the truth that he would deny Jesus, telling disciples here that they would scatter and leave him alone, that must have been hard from Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say that he tells them these things so that they might have peace and take courage. How does telling them that they'll abandon him, that they will scatter, promote peace and courage? Well, it does because it's hard truth. Jesus is not giving them false optimism. He's saying the truth is you're going to fail. And so this doesn't give peace and courage now. It will after they scatter, after they fail, after they leave Jesus alone. They will remember that he knew they would fail. They will remember that he didn't reject them for it or cast them out. Jesus knew it was coming. And their courage doesn't depend on their own success, but on the fact that Jesus has overcome the world in spite of their weakness. They are strengthened by their faith in Jesus. And they're going to fail this time, but these men are going to grow from this failure. Every one of them will live to face persecution. They will all die for Jesus. Everyone except John will go to his death refusing to deny the name of Jesus. They are going to learn and grow and become courageous because when they do fail, they know from the words of Jesus that he invites them to come back. They will also learn this truth, that on the other side of trial is joy. The metaphor is going to make a lot of sense to them after this. They'll learn that the world may rejoice, but Jesus overcomes. They'll learn there is peace in Jesus that the world can't explain. They don't know that now. Jesus knows that. There are truths we simply must grow into through failure. Understanding prayer is another one of those truths we must grow into. This is the big question I have put off. It's one of the big questions of chapters 13 to 17. Jesus again promises here that if we ask for anything, the Father will give it to us. And that's a problem because we've asked for all kinds of things in our lives. We've prayed to God and he's not done it for us. We could say, well, we have to ask according to his will. And that's simple. But that makes it sound like a guessing game. You know, I I will get it if I can guess what his will is. You know, if I pick the right box, I'll get what I want if what I want is in the box. You know, or we might say you have to ask with enough faith. You have to somehow drum up enough faith in you to kind of have power over God. If you have enough faith or pure faith, God will give you whatever. There is something to these answers about faith and the will of God, but if it just comes out as a a pat kind of truism, and I I don't even think further about what Jesus has said here. You know, if I just try to give a, a quick, simple solution to the problem, then I'm missing completely the point of what Jesus is doing. That would be to act just like the disciples in this passage, you know, to claim a truism, like you have to pray according to God's will. And they say, oh, now I fully get prayer. Now I I understand. Now it's all clear. You just have to pray according to God's will. And then he answers. I get it. And then we forget about prayer and move on and act like we know what we're talking about. That's exactly what we must not do. Jesus expresses his words the way he expresses them to draw us in, to make us question, to make us confused, and to to create a problem that we now have to think about and reflect on. You know, 
What does he mean? All we have to do is ask, and God will answer whatever. How does that really work? You know, what then is prayer? I've resisted addressing the problem of this promise three times already because we haven't had enough of what Jesus is saying to put it into context. Here's our fourth opportunity, and now Jesus has given us plenty to think about, so let's think about it. We read the first promise of prayer in 14.13, the passage parallel to this one, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus repeated the promise twice in the central abide passage, first in 15.7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Also in 15.16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. We have the final version here in 16.23-24. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. With four repetitions, we have to see that prayer is important to Jesus. The problem that arises from Jesus' teaching comes from the way he phrases the promise. Without qualification or condition, Jesus simply says, If you ask anything in my name, he will give it to you. The phrasing changes slightly, but it's essentially the same. Whatever you ask, that I will do. Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. If you ask anything in my name, he will give it to you. You ask, he gives. That's what it seems to be saying. We know these words have to have a qualification. They must, because we don't get everything we ask for or everything we wish. Certainly not. Jesus' words are drawing us into further consideration. He seems to be speaking plainly, not figuratively, but plainly is probably not the right word. I think he's speaking plainly to us as though we have a mature heart and mature faith, as though we have already become who he is making us to be, I think then this would make complete sense to us. But he's he's put words in front of us that we have not yet grown into. Before coming to Christ and early on in our relationship with Christ, the desires of our sin nature, the habits we have built up, the way we perceive God, all affect how we understand and approach prayer. God is inviting us into conversation with himself, and we can begin that right away. We can all talk, and in some way I imagine God enjoys very much the talk of a baby Christian in, in prayer. You know, it's, all, it's very honest, uh, very simple, you know, just like we enjoy the words of a toddler you know, or and the words of a four-year-old or the words of a 10-year-old. Uh, the words of a 13- or 18-year-old, that, in that range we're starting to have some ups and downs. You know, when a young person becomes smart enough to have clever conversation, but lacks the wisdom to see how much he or she does not know, despite their intelligence, you know, that conversation is not always enjoyable. And we've all been that young person. There is a move from innocence and openness in conversation when we just say whatever. When ignorance comes across as its wonder and delight and honesty. That shifts to more knowing conversation. And as we grow, our conversation is skewed by fear and pride and self-focus. You know, growing up as human beings, we learn to hide our true selves. We put on fig leaves. We cover up. 
we also become more self-centered and not always more self-aware. At the same time in our conversation, we hold back, we don't, we don't reveal everything inside, and we also overreach. We say too much. And this is true with people. It's definitely true with our relationship with God. The disciples have just overreached with Jesus. You know, they claim, now we know that you know all things. That may be a true statement, but they still don't understand why it's true or to what extent it's really true. Or even what's motivating their hearts to proclaim it. They don't even really know why they're saying it. They speak out confidently from minds that are still dark and hearts that are still mixed. We can't come to God any other way. We come to God broken and immature and affected by our sin nature. He doesn't say, get right first, then come talk to me. Conversation prayer must start somewhere. It will grow as we grow, as we come to see ourselves clearly, as we come to know God truly. That's my basic premise. These plain and simple words of Jesus must be grown into to be understood. The clear problem that we do not get all we ask for alerts us to this reality, that there's something that we don't get initially. There is something here that we must grow into. My second basic premise is that the invitation stands whether we understand prayer or not. God has invited us to communicate with him. We are to pray. We are to ask for things as a child to his father. God wants us to communicate with him through all stages of our development. My third basic premise is that prayer is an essential component for relationship with God in that through prayer, we express our dependence on God, our physical dependence, our spiritual dependence, our emotional dependence. We are dependent on God, but we don't always express it. We hold, we want to be independent or self-reliant. Prayer is the way that we communicate. We are not self-reliant. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. A regular prayer acknowledges a need for God. We depend on him for life. You know, he is our shepherd. He makes us lay down in green pastures. He leads us by quiet waters. He restores our soul, and he does it for his name's sake. That is to lead us into purpose and into glory. We depend on him. Prayer is communication with God by which we express our love for him and our dependence on him. God invites us to this communication knowing full well that we need to grow into it. Because that's basic. Uh, What else do we see here? What ideas in these promises about prayer or the surrounding context suggest to us the direction our growth needs to take? How do we need to grow in prayer? First, Jesus refers to God as Father. God is not a genie. God is not a power source that we tap into. God is not a a being we try to manipulate. That's the natural course of human prayer. That's the tendency is to see prayer as a means to get what we want from God, rather than seeing prayer as a mode of loving communication with God. So we have to reframe how we're understanding these verses. Prayer is not about me getting what I want. Prayer is about me entering into loving relationship with God and communicating to him. In the Old Testament, the third commandment is really about prayer. 
do not take the Lord's name in vain. We often hear that means, you know, don't cuss and use God's name. And that's forbidden too, but that's not what it's really about. Uh, If you think about the origin of cussing, if somebody were to say, God damn you, that's not some random explicative or frustration or anger. That's an attempt, originally, that was an attempt to call God as a power, God, would you please damn this other person? It's a call to harm somebody. That's what a curse is. At heart, it's an attempt to harness the power of God to carry out a personal agenda. And that's what it means to not take God's name in vain. Do not try to harness the name of God as magic for your personal goals. That's not what prayer is meant to be, though that is so often what human prayer becomes. God exists for me to get done what I want to get done. It's the natural direction of our sinful flesh. We, we want some kind of spiritual power, even, even if he's greater than us, if we can manipulate him or control him or get him on our side, then that will help us to accomplish what we want to accomplish in life. It will give us control or power or safety or security. God as Father means he is the right authority over us. We submit to him. We make requests, not demands. We're trying to obey his will, and we trust him with his answers, whether it's yes or no or maybe. God as Father also means he loves us, and we love him. Prayer is not magic. We're not trying to use words to harness spiritual power. Prayer is communication in a love relationship between Heavenly Father and human child. In prayer, we speak to God. I've often been asked, why pray if God knows what's going to happen anyway? It's an interesting question, and I think it's off the mark because I think it goes at um, a, a wrong human assumption of prayer. It assumes the real reason to pray is to get stuff. So if God's, or if he's going to give it whether I pray or not, why should I pray? Because God really just exists as a power source for me to get stuff from. I mean, isn't that really what the question is saying? Why pray if God knows stuff already? Well, well, why pray? We talk to God to express our love and dependence on him. We talk to God that our perspective might change, that we might see as he sees. We talk to God because we don't really understand how it all works. We just know he told us to bring our requests. We talk to God because it's not all about getting stuff. It's about bringing ourselves, our mind, our heart, our soul to him. It's through prayer that we yield. It's through prayer that we cry out. It's through prayer that we unload burdens. It's through prayer we stop looking at our circumstances and we begin to see him and our perspective changes. Prayer is communication with our Heavenly Father. Of course he knows what's going to happen, and of course he knows what he's going to do. But we don't. And we don't even know what we really want. And it's not all about getting stuff from God. You know, maybe in the asking, we will find out what we want. Regardless, we trust him and his will to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. We enter into prayer as communication between a, a, a son or a daughter and their father. Doesn't matter whether he knows or what's going to happen or not. So first we see Jesus inviting us in these promises to pray to God his father. And that, that's huge. 
Second, and what stands out as really new, we see Jesus inviting us to pray in his name. There is something simple here and something very deep here. By praying in the name of Jesus, we are stating something about who we believe God to be. If I pray in the name of Jesus, I'm not praying according to God's prophet Muhammad. I'm not praying to Mother God. I'm not praying to Krishna. I'm not praying to St. Francis. Now, all those prayers indicate a certain belief about God that is contrary to the teaching of Jesus. When we pray in the name of Jesus to God the Father, we show our allegiance to Father and Son. This is what we believe. We show that we have believed in and yielded to the vision of who God is proclaimed by Jesus Christ. He is our Father, and he receives prayer in the name of Jesus. That's the basic simple idea, to pray in the name of Jesus is, is to make a statement of faith regarding who we believe God to be. The idea goes deeper. Uh, to pray in the name of Jesus is to pray according to the nature of Jesus. And this has something to do with our mind and our, our heart as we come into prayer. If you'll remember in the prologue in, in chapter 1, verse 12, and the purpose statement, chapter 20, verse 31, eternal life is not said to come through belief, but to come from belief in the name of Jesus. You know, it's to those who believe in the name of Jesus. That's a way of saying belief in Jesus according to who Jesus has revealed himself to be. Or, or to say true belief, you know, true belief in who Jesus really is. That's what it's meant by belief in the name of Jesus. Many have claimed to believe in Jesus through this gospel, when their belief actually rests on a misconception of who the Messiah or who the prophet is. They believe in their version of Jesus. You can say you believe in Jesus, but if you deny that he's God in man, you don't believe in Jesus. If you deny he is the word who has always been, you don't believe in Jesus. If you deny that he died in your place as a true sacrifice of atonement and that there is no salvation apart from him, if you deny that, you don't believe in Jesus. You're rejecting something essential about his nature. You're not believing in his name as he's revealed it, the I am. So name is not just the word Jesus. Jesus is his name. But here name means the nature of Jesus. To believe in his name is to believe in the fundamental truths about who he is. To pray in the name of Jesus is a similar idea as believing in the name of Jesus. And it's not simply a formal way to end a prayer. Da-da-da-da-da, in the name of Jesus, amen. We do that all the time without thinking about it. What we need to grow into is making a connection between the nature of Jesus and the requests we are making to God. You know, if I'm going to end my prayer with, in the name of Jesus, I seriously need to be thinking about, can I really ask this in the name of Jesus? Do I believe that what I just asked for is in harmony with his nature? And Jesus could ask that the Father remove the cup of suffering that was the cross. Jesus could ask that. But at the same time, he could not bring himself to ask it if it was against the will of the Father. That was the nature of Jesus. Because of who he is, he added, not my will, but your will be done. And that wasn't just this formula that Jesus came up because that's the right way you're supposed to speak to God. That was the authentic expression of his heart. On one level, he, he didn't desire the pain of the cross. Of course he didn't. But on a deeper level, he desired the glory of God. He desired the salvation of humankind. He desired the strength and courage to carry out the will of God. That's what he truly wanted because that's his true nature. 
we're trying to pray according to that nature when we pray in the name of Jesus. And that has an intellectual component. I'm thinking as best I can with my mind whether I can honestly ask my request in light of who I know Jesus to be. I'm thinking with my mind, can I pray this according to his name? Prayer is not merely an intellectual exercise. Prayer also has a heart component. So when I consider the wishes of my new heart, what is it that I truly want? I begin to find that deep in me, I want the glory of God. I want to love God with my obedience. I want the courage and goodness and honesty that is Jesus. Now, I want my heart to be in harmony with the name of Jesus. And I have these other wants that come out of my flesh. I have other perspectives that come out of my mind. But when I see who I am becoming in Jesus, I have a new set of desires and perspectives. I have a new vision for what life really is. This abundant life that Jesus spoke about doesn't come from my fleshly desires and habits and perspectives. I have a lot to learn about new life in him. You know, I can see that in my soul. I need to reject, to put to death the desires and perspectives, the deeds of the flesh. I'm learning to turn away from those desires and turn towards the desires of the Spirit. And this is to, to pray in the name of Jesus, is to be walking in the Spirit of Jesus, so that what I pray for comes out of my heart relationship with him. In 15.7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. To, to pray in the name of Jesus, according to his nature, I need to abide in him and in his word. So it's walking in the spirit and this continually understanding of his word so that I, I can have a, a clear vision of what it means to live for Jesus so that I can pray in his name according to his nature. Abiding in Christ makes me into the kind of person who prays in his name. And the person who prays in his name is the kind of person who is able to experience joy and peace from his relationship with God. And that's why when I pray in his name and he answers those prayers and those prayers bring glory to God, then my joy is made full because I love God. And I love the idea both of God meeting my needs, but also of of me successfully producing fruit for him. Now, all three of our tricky issues from chapter 14, 12 to 15 are intertwined. Jesus declared that we're going to do great works, you know, greater works than he did. He tells us to pray and ask, and God will do it for us. And he says, if you love me, you will be obedient. You know, it's all connected. Because I love God, I want to be obedient. I want to do these great works. And he said, I'm going to do great works. But if I'm going to do the great works God wants me to do, I've got to pray. Because that great work is to love, and I can't love like he loves. So it's it's all connected. We can sum up all the truths of abiding that we've been talking about, just to remember, because it's in this context that we have to understand prayer, that there is a heart of abiding, and it is fundamentally a heart of faith or belief. It is a heart of love for the Father. It is a heart of humility, and it is a heart of glory. I, I want to bring glory to the Father. So that's a heart. Um, belief, love, humility, glory. And that leads us to acts. We want to act for God. And the fundamental act is prayer. That's first. We we have to pray to show our dependence on Christ because without him we can do nothing of value. 
we we pray, we're in his word, we're obeying, and we're witnessing. That's the acts of abiding that's coming out of our new heart. And from that, we experience the fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of new life. Now, let's sum up. Let's conclude. You know, the three basics of prayer. Do we understand prayer? Does a child understand communication before he starts to talk? No. Jesus invites us to pray before we we understand prayer. And so remember the three basics. First, prayer is a relational act of communication by which you express your love for and dependence on God, your Father. That's what prayer is. Second, God, your Father, invites you to come into his presence. No matter where you are in maturity or understanding, come. Come freely because you are in Jesus. If you have guilt, come. Confess, be forgiven. If you have sorrow, come, be comforted. If you are confused, come, learn from him. If you have joy, come and worship, come enjoy him. Just come. And third, prayer is something you grow into. You don't have to understand it to do it. You're going to grow into prayer over your life as you walk with God and as you keep talking to him. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.